Nietzsche's The Genealogy of Morals, Essay 1, Good and Evil, Good and Bad. Those English psychologists who, up to the present, are the only philosophers who are to be thanked for any endeavour to get as far as a history of the origin of morality, these men, I say, offer us in their own personalities no paltry problem. They even have, if I am to be quite frank about it, in their capacity of living riddles, an advantage over their books. <laughs> they themselves are interesting. These English psychologists, what do they really mean? We always find them voluntarily or involuntarily at the same task of pushing to the front the party on us shameful part of our inner world and looking for the efficient governing and decisive principle in that precise quarter where the intellectual self-respect of the race would be the most reluctant to find it for example in the vis inertiae the power of inertia of habit or in forgetfulness or in blind and fortuitous mechanism and association of ideas, or in some factor that is purely passive, reflex, molecular, or fundamentally stupid. What is the real motive power which always impels these psychologists in precisely this direction? Is it an instinct for human disparagement, somewhat sinister, vulgar and malignant, or perhaps incomprehensible even to itself. Or perhaps a touch of pessimistic jealousy. The mistrust of disillusioned idealists who have become gloomy, poisoned and bitter. Or a petty subconscious enmity and rancour across Christianity and Plato that has conceivably never crossed the threshold of consciousness. Or just a vicious taste for those elements of life which are bizarre, painfully paradoxical, mystical and illogical. Or, as a final alternative, a dash of each of these motives, a little vulgarity, a little gloominess, a little anti-Christianity, a little craving for the necessary piquancy. But I am told that it is simply a case of old, frigid and tedious frogs crawling and hopping around men and inside men as if they were as thoroughly at home there as they would be in a swamp. I am opposed to this statement. Nay, I do not believe it. And if, in the impossibility of knowledge, one is permitted to wish... So do I wish, from my heart, that just the converse metaphor should apply, and then these analysts with their psychological microscopes should be, at bottom, brave, proud, magnanimous animals who know how to bridle both their hearts and their smarts, and have specifically trained themselves to sacrifice what is desirable to what is true, any truth, in fact, even the simple, bitter, ugly, repulsive, unchristian and immoral truths. For there are truths of that description.
All honour, then, to the noble spirits who would fain dominate these historians of morality. But it's certainly a pity that they lack the historical sense itself. That they themselves are quite deserted by all the beneficent spirits of history. The whole train of their thought runs, as was always the line of old-fashioned philosophers, on thoroughly unhistorical lines. There's no doubt on this point. The crass ineptitude of their genealogy of morals is immediately apparent when the question arises of ascertaining the origin of the idea and judgment of good. Man had originally, so speaks their decree, praised and called good altruistic acts from the standpoint of those on whom they were conferred, that is, those to whom they were useful. Subsequently, the origin of this praise was forgotten. The altruistic acts, simply because, as a sheer matter of habit, they were praised as good, came also to be felt as good, as though they contained in themselves some intrinsic goodness. The thing is obvious. This initial derivation contains already all the typical and idiosyncratic traits of the English psychologists. We have utility, forgetting, habit, and finally, error. The whole assemblage forming the basis of a system of values on which the higher man has, up to the present, prided himself as though it were a kind of privilege of man in general. This pride must be brought low. The system of values must lose its values. Is that attained? Well, now the first argument that comes ready to my hand is that the real homestead of the concept, good, is sought and located in the wrong place. The judgment, good, did not originate among those to whom goodness was shown. Much rather has it been the good themselves, that is, the aristocratic, the powerful, the high-stationed, the high-minded, who have felt that they themselves were good, and that their actions were good that is to say, of the first order, in contradistinction to all the low, the low-minded, the vulgar, and the plebeian. It was out of this pathos of distance that they first arrogated the right to create values for their own profit, and to coin the names of such values. What had they to do with utility? The standpoint of utility is as alien and as inapplicable as it could possibly be. When we have to deal with so volcanic an effervescence of supreme values, creating and demarcating as they do a hierarchy within themselves, it is at this juncture that one arrives at an appreciation of the contrast to that tepid temperature, which is the presupposition on which every combination of worldly wisdom and every calculation of practical expedience is always based. And not for one occasional, not for one exceptional instance, but chronically. The pathos of nobility and distance, as I have said, the chronic and despotic esprit de corps, the fundamental instinct of a higher dominant race coming into association with a meaner race, an under-race. This is the origin of the antithesis of good and bad.
The master's right of giving names goes so far that it is permissible to look upon language itself as the expression of the power of the masters. They say, this is that and that. They seal finally every object and every event with a sound and thereby at the same time take possession of it. It is because of this origin that the word good is far from having any necessary connection with altruistic acts in accordance with the superstitious belief in these moral philosophers. On the contrary, it is the occasion of the decay of aristocratic values that the antitheses between egoistic and altruistic presses more and more heavily on the human conscience. It is, to use my own language, the herd instinct, which finds in this antithesis an expression in many ways. And even then it takes a considerable time for this instinct to become sufficiently dominant, for the valuation to be inextricably dependent on this antithesis, as is the case in contemporary Europe. For today, the prejudice is predominant, which, acting even now with all the intensity of an obsession and brain disease, holds that moral, altruistic and desinteresse are concepts of equal value. In the second place, quite apart from the fact that this hypothesis as to the genesis of the value good cannot be historically upheld, it suffers from an inherent psychological contradiction. The utility of altruistic conduct has presumably been the origin of its being praised and this origin has become forgotten. But in what conceivable way is this forgetting possible? Has perchance the utility of such conduct ceased at some moment? Well, the contrary is the case. This utility has rather been experienced every day at all times, and is consequently a feature that obtains a new and regular emphasis with every fresh day. It follows that, so far from vanishing from the consciousness, so far indeed from being forgotten, it must necessarily become impressed on the consciousness with ever-increasing distinctness. How much more logical is that contrary theory, it is not true for that, which is represented, for instance, by Herbert Spencer, who places the concept good as essentially similar to the concept useful, purposive, so that in the judgments of good and bad, Mankind is simply summarising and investing with a sanction its unforgotten and unforgettable experiences concerning the useful purposive and the mischievous non-purposive. Well, according to this theory, good is the attribute of that which has previously shown itself useful, and so is able to claim to be considered valuable in the highest degree, valuable in itself. Well, this method of explanation is also, as I have said, wrong, but at any rate, the explanation itself is coherent and psychologically tenable. The guidepost which first put me on the right track was this question. 
what is the true etymological significance of the various symbols for the idea good which have been coined in the various languages. I then found that they all led back to the same evolution of the same idea, that everywhere aristocrat, noble in the social sense, is the root idea out of which have necessarily developed good in the sense of with aristocratic soul. Noble in the sense of with a soul of high calibre, with a privileged soul, a development which invariably runs parallel with that other evolution by which vulgar, plebeian, low are made to change finally into bad. The most eloquent proof of this last contention is the German word schlecht itself. This word is identical with schlicht. Compare schlechtweg and schlechterings, which originally, and as yet without any sinister innuendo, simply denoted the plebeian man in contrast to the aristocratic man. It is at the sufficiently late period of the Thirty Years' War that this sense becomes changed to the sense now current. From the standpoint of the genealogy of morals, this discovery seems to be substantial. The lateness of it is to be attributed to the retarding influence exercised in the modern world by democratic prejudice in the sphere of all questions of origin. This extends, as we as will shortly be shown, even to the province of natural science and physiology, which prima facie is the most objective. The extent of the mischief which is caused by this prejudice, once it is free of all trammels except those of its own malice, particularly to ethics and history, is shown by the notorious case of Buckle. It was in Buckle that that plebeianism of the modern spirit, which is of English origin, broke out once again from its malignant soil with all the violence of a slimy volcano, and with that salted, rampant and vulgar eloquence with which, up to the present time, all volcanoes have spoken. With regard to our problem, which can justly be called an intimate problem, and which elects to appeal to only a limited number of ears, it is of no small interest to ascertain that in those words and roots which denote good, we catch glimpses of that arch trait, on the strength of which the aristocrats feel themselves to be beings of a higher order than their fellows. Indeed, they call themselves, in perhaps the most frequent instances, simply after their superiority and powerful, e.g. the powerful, the lords, the commanders, or after the most obvious sign of their superiority, as for example, the rich, the possessors, that is the meaning of aria, as the Iranian and Slav languages correspond, but they also but they also call themselves after some characteristic idiosyncrasy. And this is the case which now concerns us. They name themselves, for instance, the truthful. Well, this is first done by the Greek nobility, whose mouthpiece is founded in 
Theogonus, the Megarian poet. The word esthlos, which is coined for the purpose, signifies etymologically one who is, who has reality, who is real, who is true. And then with the subjective twist, the true as the truthful, at this stage in the evolution of the idea, it becomes the motto and party cry of the nobility, and quite completes the transition to the meaning noble, so as to place outside the pale the lying vulgar man, as Theognis conceives and portrays him, till finally the word, after the decay of the nobility is left to delineate psychological noblesse, it becomes, as it were, ripe and mellow. In the word kakos, as in delos, the Popeian, in contrast to the agathos, the cowardice is emphasised. This affords perhaps an inkling on what lines the etymological origin of the very ambiguous agathos is to be investigated. In the Latin malus, which I place side by side with malas, the vulgar man can be distinguished as the dark-coloured, and above all as the black-haired, hic niger est, as the pre-Aryan inhabitants of the Italian soil, whose complexion formed the clearest feature of distinction from the dominant blondes, namely the Aryan conquering race. At that rate, Gaelic has afforded me the exact analogue, Finn, for example in the name Fingal, the distinctive word of the nobility, finally, good, noble, clean, but originally the blonde-haired man in contrast to the dark, black-haired aboriginals. The Celts, if I may make a parenthetic statement, were throughout a blonde race, and it is wrong to connect, as Virchow still does, those traces of an essentially dark-haired population which are to be seen on the more elaborate ethnographical maps of Germany with any Celtic ancestry or with any admixture of Celtic blood. In this context, it is rather the pre-Aryan population of Germany which surges up to these districts. The same is true substantially of the whole of Europe. In point of fact, the subject race has finally again obtained the upper hand in complexion and the shortness of skull, and perhaps in the intellectual and social qualities. Who can guarantee that modern democracy, still more modern anarchy, and indeed the tendency to the commune, the most primitive form of society, which is now common to all the socialists in Europe, does not in its real essence signify a monstrous reversion, and that the conquering and master race, the Aryan race, is not also becoming inferior physiologically. I believe that I can explain the Latin bonus as the warrior. My hypothesis is that I am right in deriving bonus from an older word, duonus. Compare bellum, duellum, duenlum, in which the word duonus appears to me to be contained. Bonus, accordingly, as the man of discord, of variance, and Zweiung, duo, as the warrior, 
one sees what in ancient Rome the good meant for a man. Must not our actual German word gut mean the godlike, the man of a godlike race, and be identical with the national name, originally the noble's name, of the Goths? The grounds for this supposition do not appertain to this work. Above all, there is no exception, though there are opportunities for exceptions, to this rule, that the idea of political superiority always resolves itself into the idea of psychological superiority. In those cases where the highest caste is at the same time the priestly caste, and in accordance with its general characteristics, confers on itself the privilege of a title which alludes specifically to its priestly function. It is in these cases, for instance, that clean and unclean confront each other for the first time as badges of class distinction. Here again there develops a good and a bad, in a sense which has ceased to be merely social. Moreover, care should be taken not to take these ideas of clean and unclean too seriously, too broadly, or too symbolically. Of all the ideas of ancient man have, on the contrary, got to be understood in their initial stages, in a sense which is, to an almost inconceivable extent, crude, coarse, physical and narrow, and above all essentially unsymbolical. The clean man is originally only a man who washes himself, who abstains from certain foods which are conducive to skin diseases, who does not sleep with the unclean woman of the lower classes, who has a horror of blood, not more, but much more. On the other hand, the very nature of the priestly aristocracy shows the reasons why, just at such an early juncture, there should ensure there should ensue a really dangerous sharpening and intensification of opposed values. It is, in fact, through these opposed values that gulfs are cleft in the social plane, which a veritable Achilles of free thought would shudder to cross. There is from the outset a certain diseased taint in such sacerdotal aristocracies and in the habits which prevail in these societies, habits which, averse as they are to action, constitute a compound of introspection and explosive emotionalism, as a result of which there appears that introspective morbidity and neurasthenia, which adheres almost inevitably to all priests at all times. With regard, however, to the remedy, which they themselves have invented for this disease, the philosopher has no option but to state that it has proved itself in the effects a hundred times more dangerous than the disease from which it should have been the deliverer. Humanity itself is still diseased from the effects of the naiveties of this priestly, case, priestly cure. Take, for instance, certain kinds of diet, abstention from flesh, fasts, sexual continence, flight into the wilderness, a kind of via Mitchell isolation. Though of course without that system of excessive feeding and fattening which is the most efficient antidote to all the hysteria of the ascetic ideal.
Consider too the whole metaphysic of the priests, with its war on the senses, its innovation, its hair-splitting. Consider its self-hypnotism on the fakir and Brahman principles. It uses Brahman as a glass disc and obsession. And that climax, which we can understand only too well of an unusual satiety, with its panacea of nothingness, or God, the demand for a unio mystica with God is the demand of the Buddhist for nothingness, nirvana and nothing else. In sacerdotal societies, every element is on a more dangerous scale, not merely cures and remedies, but also pride, revenge, cunning, exaltation, love, ambition, virtue, morbidity, Further, it can fairly be stated that it is on the soil of this essentially dangerous form of human society, the sacerdotal form, that man really becomes for the first time an interesting animal. That it is in this form that the soul of man has in a higher sense attained depths and become evil. And those are the two fundamental forms of the superiority which up to the present man has exhibited over every other animal. The reader will have already surmised with what ease the priestly mode of valuation can branch off from the knightly aristocratic mode and then develop into the very antithesis of the latter. Special impetus is given to this opposition by every occasion when the castes of the priests and warriors confront each other with mutual jealousy and cannot agree over the prize. The knightly aristocratic values are based on a careful cult of the physical, on a flowering, rich and even effervescing healthiness that goes considerably beyond what is necessary for maintaining life, on war, adventure, the chase, the dance, the tourney, on everything, in fact, which is contained in strong, free, and joyous action. The priestly aristocratic mode of valuation is, we have seen, based on other hypotheses. It is bad enough for this class when it is a question of war, yet the priests are, as is notorious, the worst enemies. Why? Because they are the weakest. Their weakness causes their hate to expand into a monstrous and sinister shape, a shape which is most crafty and most poisonous. The really great haters in the history of the world have always been priests, who are also the cleverest haters. In comparison to the cleverness of priestly revenge, every other piece of cleverness is practically negligible. Human history would be too fatuous for anything were it not for the cleverness imported into it by the weak. Take at once the most important instance. All the world's efforts against the aristocrats, the mighty, the masters, the holders of power are negligible by comparison with what has been accomplished against those classes by the Jews. The Jews, that priestly nation which eventually realised that the one method of effecting satisfaction on its enemies and tyrants was by means of a radical transvaluation of values, which was at the same time an act of the cleverest revenge.
yet the method was only appropriate to a nation of priests, to a nation of the most jealously nursed priestly revengefulness. It was the Jews who, in opposition to the aristocratic equation, good equals aristocratic equals beautiful equals happy equals loved by the gods, dared, with a terrifying logic, to suggest the contrary equation, and indeed to maintain with the teeth of the most profound hatred, the hatred of weakness, this contrary equation, namely, the wretched are alone the good. The poor, the weak, the lonely, the lowly are alone the good. The suffering, the needy, the sick, the loathsome are the only ones who are pious, the only ones who are blessed, for them alone is salvation. But you, on the other hand, you aristocrats, you men of power, you are to all eternity the evil, the horrible, the covetous, the insatiate, the godless, eternally. Also shall you be the unblessed, the cursed, the damned. We know who it was who reaped the heritage of this Jewish transvaluation. In the context of the monstrous and inordinately fateful initiative which the Jews have exhibited in connection with the most fundamental of all declarations of war, I remember the passage which came to my pen on another occasion, from Beyond Good and Evil, page 195, that it was, oh, <coughs> sorry, aphorism 195, that it was in fact that the with the Jews that the revolt of the slaves begins in the sphere of morals. That revolt which has behind it a history of two millennia and which at the present day has only moved out of sight because it has achieved victory. But you understand this not? You have no eyes for a force which has taken 2,000 years to achieve victory. There is nothing wonderful in this. All lengthy processes are hard to see and to realise. But this is what took place. From the trunk of that tree of revenge and hate, Jewish hate, that most profound and sublime hate, which creates ideals and changes old values to new creations, the like of which has never been on earth, there grew a phenomenon which was equally incomparable, a new love, the most profound and sublime of all kinds of love. And from what other trunk could it have grown? But beware of supposing that this love has soared on its upward growth as in any way a real negation of that thirst for revenge, as an antithesis to the Jewish hate. No, the contrary is the truth. This love grew out of that hate as its crown, as its triumphant crown, circling wider and wider amid the clarity and fullness of the sun, the pursuing in the very kingdom of light and height of its goal of hatred, its victory, its spoil, its strategy, with the same intensity with which the roots of that tree of hate sank into everything that was deep and evil with increasing stability and increasing desire. This Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate gospel of love, this Redeemer, bringing salvation and victory to the poor, the sick, the sinful, 
Was he not really temptation in its most sinister and irresistible form? Temptation to take the torturous path to those very Jewish values and those very Jewish ideals? Has not Israel really obtained the final goal of its sublime revenge by the torturous paths of this Redeemer, for all that he might pose as Israel's adversary and Israel's destroyer? Is it not due to the black magic of a really great policy of revenge, of a far-seeing, burrowing revenge, both acting and calculating with slowness that Israel himself must repudiate before all the world the actual instrument of his own revenge and nail it to the cross, so that all the world, that is, all the enemies of Israel, could nibble without suspicion at this very bait? Could, moreover, any human mind, with all its elaborate ingenuity, invent a bait that was more truly dangerous? Anything that was even equivalent in the power of its seductive, intoxicating, defiling and corrupting influence to that symbol on the Holy Cross, to that awful paradox of a God on the Cross, to that mystery of the unthinkable, supreme and utter horror of the self-crucifixion of a God for the salvation of man? It is at least certain that sub hoc signo, Israel, with its revenge and transvaluation of all values, has, up to the present, always triumphed again over all other ideals, over all more aristocratic ideals. But why do you talk of nobler ideals? Let us submit to the facts that the people have triumphed, or the slaves, or the populace, or the herd, or whatever name you care to give them. If this has happened through the Jews, so be it. In that case, no nation ever had a greater mission in the world's history. The masters have been done away with. The morality of the vulgar man has triumphed. This triumph may also be called a blood poisoning, it has mutually fused the races. I do not dispute it, but there is no doubt that this intoxication has succeeded. The redemption of the human race, that is from the masters, is progressing swimmingly. Everything is obviously becoming Judaized, or Christianized, or vulgarized. What is, what is there in the words? It seems impossible to stop the course of this poisoning through the whole body politic of mankind but its tempo and pace may, from the present time, be slower, more delicate, quieter, more discreet. There is time enough in view of this context. Has the church nowadays any necessary purpose? Has it in fact a right to live? Or could man get on without it? We should ask. It seems that if fetters and it seems that it fetters and retards this tendency, instead of accelerating it. Well, even that might be, to be its utility. The church certainly is a crude and boorish institution that is repugnant to an intelligence with any pretense at delicacy, to a really modern taste. Should it not at any rate learn to be somewhere more subtle? It alienates nowadays more than it allures. 
which of us would, forsooth, be a free thinker if there were no church? It is the church which repels us, not its poison. Apart from the church, we like the poison. This is the epilogue of a free thinker to my discourse, of an honourable animal, as he has given me abundant proof, and a democrat to boot. He had up to that time listened to me and could not endure my silence. But for me indeed, with regard to this topic, there is much on which to be silent. The revolt of the slaves in morals begins in the very principle of resentment, becoming creative and giving birth to values. A resentment experienced by creatures who, deprived as they are of the proper outlet of action, are forced to find their compensation in an imaginary revenge. While every aristocratic morality springs from a triumphant affirmation of its own demands, the slave morality says no from the very outset to what is outside itself, different from itself, and not itself, and this no is its creative deed. This vault face of the valuing standpoint, this inevitable gravitation to the objective instead of back to the subjective is typical of resentment. The slave morality requires as the condition of its existence an eternal and objective world to employ physiological terminology. It requires objective stimuli to be capable of action at all. Its action is fundamentally a reaction. The contrary is the case when we come to the aristocrat's system of values. It acts and grows spontaneously. It merely seeks its antithesis in order to pronounce a more grateful and exalted yes to its own self. Its negative conception, low, vulgar, bad, is merely a pale, late-born foil in comparison with its positive and fundamental conception, saturated as it is with life and passion. Of we aristocrats, we good ones, we beautiful ones, we happy ones. When the aristocratic morality goes astray and commits sacrilege on reality, this is limited to that particular sphere with which it is not sufficiently acquainted. A sphere, in fact, from the real knowledge of which it disdainfully defends itself. It misjudges, in some cases, the sphere which it despises, the sphere of the common vulgar man and the low people. On the other hand, due weight should be given to the consideration that in any case the mood of contempt, of disdain, of superciliousness, even on the supposition that it falsely portrays the object of its contempt, will always be far removed from that degree of falsity which will always characterise the attacks, in effigy of course, of the vindictive hatred and revengefulness of the weak and onslaughts of their enemies. In point of fact, there is in contempt too strong an admixture of nonchalance, of casualness, of boredom, of impatience, even of personal exaltation, for it to be capable of distorting its victim into a real caricature or a real monstrosity. Attention again should be 
paid to the almost benevolent nuances which, for instance, the Greek nobility imports into all words by which it distinguishes the common people from itself. Note how continuously a kind of pity, care and consideration imparts its honeyed flavour until, at last, almost all the words which are applied to the vulgar man survive finally as expressions for unhappy, worthy of pity, and how conversely, bad, low, unhappy, have never ceased to ring in the Greek ear with a tone in which unhappy is the predominant note. This is the heritage of the old noble aristocratic morality, which remains true to itself, even in contempt. The well-born simply felt themselves to felt themselves the happy. They do not have to manufacture their happiness artificially through looking at their enemies, or in cases to talk and lie themselves into happiness, as is the custom with all resentful men. And similarly, complete men as they were, exuberant with strength and consequently necessarily energetic, they were too wise to dissociate happiness from action. Activity becomes in their minds necessarily counted as happiness, all in sharp contrast to the happiness of the weak and the oppressed, with their festering venom and malignity, malignity among whom happiness appears essentially as a narcotic, a deadening, a quietude, a peace, a sabbath, an innovation of the mind and relaxation of the limbs, in short a purely passive phenomenon. While the aristocratic man lives in confidence and openness with himself, the resentful man on the other hand is neither sincere nor naive, nor honest and candid with himself. His soul squints. His mind loves hidden crannies, torturous paths and back doors. Everything secret appeals to him as his world, his safety, his balm. He is past master in silence, in not forgetting, in waiting, in provisional self-depreciation and self-abasement. A race of such resentful men will of necessity eventually prove more prudent than any aristocratic race. It will honour prudence on quite a distinct scale as in fact a paramount condition of existence. While prudence among aristocratic men is apt to be tinged with a delicate flavour of luxury and refinement. So among them it plays nothing like so integral a part as that complete certainty of function of the governing unconscious instincts, or as indeed a certain lack of prudence, such as a vehement and valiant charge, whether against danger or the enemy, or as those ecstatic bursts of rage, love, reverence, gratitude, by which at all times noble souls have recognised each other. When the resentment of the aristocratic man manifests itself, it fulfils and exhausts itself in an immediate reaction, and consequently instils no venom. On the other hand, it never manifests itself at all in countless instances, when in the case of the feeble and weak it would be inevitable. An inability to take seriously for any length of time their enemies, their disasters, their misdeeds, 
that is the sign of the full strong natures who possess a superfluity of moulding plastic force that heals completely and produces forgetfulness. A good example of this in the modern world is Mirabeau, who had no memory for any insults or meanness which were practised on him, and who was only capable of forgiving because he forgot. Such a man indeed shakes off with a shrug many a worm which would have buried itself in another. It is only in characters like these that we see the possibility, supposing of course that there is such a possibility in the world, of a real love of one's enemies. What respect for his enemies is found, forsooth, in an aristocratic man, and such a reverence is already a bridge to love. He insists on having his enemy to himself as his distinction. He tolerates no other enemy but a man in whose character there is nothing to despise and much to honour. On the other hand, imagine the enemy as the resentful man conceives him, and it is here exactly that we see his work, his creativeness. He has conceived the evil enemy. The evil one, and indeed that is the root idea from which he now evolves as a contrasting and corresponding figure, a good one, himself, his very self. The method of this man is quite contrary to that of the aristocratic man who conceives the root idea, good, spontaneously and straight away. That is to say, out of himself and from the material, then creates for himself a concept of bad. This bad of aristocratic origin and that evil out of the cauldron of unsatisfied hatred, the former an imitation, an extra, an additional nuance, the latter on the other hand the original, the beginning, the essential act and the conception of all slave morality. These two words, bad and evil, how great a difference do they mark, in spite of the fact that they have an identical contrary in the idea good. But the idea good is not the same. Much rather, let the question be asked, who is really evil according to the meaning of the morality of resentment? In all sternness, let it be answered thus, just the good man of the other morality, just the aristocrat, the powerful one, the one who rules, but who is distorted by the venomous eye of resentfulness into a new colour, a new signification, a new appearance. This particular point we would be the last to deny, the man who learnt to know those good ones only as enemies, learnt at the same time not to know them only as evil enemies, and the same men as inter pares, among equals, were kept so rigorously in bounds through convention, respect, custom and gratitude, though much more through mutual vigilance and jealousy inter pares, these men who in their relations with each other find so many new ways of manifesting consideration, self-control, delicacy, loyalty, pride and friendship. These men are in reference to what is outside their circle, where the foreign element, a foreign country, begins. Not much better than beasts of prey which have been let loose. 
They enjoy the freedom from all social control. They feel that in the wilderness they can give vent with impunity to that tension which was produced by enclosure and the imprisonment of the peace of society. They revert to the innocence of the beast of prey conscience, like jubilant monsters who perhaps come from a ghostly bout of murder, arson, rape and torture, with bravado and a moral equanimity, as though merely some wild student's prank had been played. Perfectly convinced that the poets have now an ample theme to sing and celebrate, it is impossible not to recognise at the core of all these aristocratic races the beast of prey, the magnificent blonde brute, avidly aristocratic, rampant for spoil and victory. This hidden core needed an outlet from time to time. The beast must get loose again, must return into the wilderness. The Roman, Arabic, German and Japanese nobility the Homeric heroes, the Scandinavian Vikings are all alike in this need. It is the aristocratic races who have left the idea barbarian on all the tracks in which they have marched. Nay, a consciousness of this very barbarianism, and even a pride in it, manifests itself in their highest civilization. For example, when Pericles says to his Athenians in that celebrated funeral oration, Our audacity has forced away over every land and sea, rearing every imperishable memorials, rearing everywhere imperishable memorials of itself for good and for evil. This audacity of aristocratic races mad, absurd and spasmodic as may be its expression, the incalculable and fantastic nature of their enterprises, all these features become crystallised for those who suffered thereby in the picture of the barbarian, of the evil enemy, perhaps of the goth and of the vandal, the profound icy mistrust which the German provokes as soon as he arrives at power even at the present time, is always still an aftermath of that inextinguishable horror with which, for whole centuries, Europe has regarded the wrath of the blonde Teuton beast. Although, between the old Germans and ourselves, there exists scarcely a psychological, let alone a physical, relationship. I have once called attention to the embarrassment of Hesiod when he conceived the series of social ages and endeavoured to express them in gold, silver and bronze. He could only dispose of the contradiction with which he was confronted by the Homeric world, an age manifest, an age magnificent indeed, but at the same time so awful and so violent, by making two ages out of one, which he henceforth placed one behind the other, first the age of the heroes and demigods, as that world had remained in the memories of the aristocratic families who found therein their own ancestors. Secondly, the Bronze Age, as that corresponding age appeared to the descendants of the oppressed, spoiled, ill-treated, exiled, enslaved. Namely, as an age of bronze, as I have said, hard, cold and terrible, without feelings and without conscience, 
crushing everything and bespattering everything with blood. Granted, the truth of the theory now believed to be true, that the very essence of all civilization is to train out of man the beast of prey, a tame and civilized animal, a domesticated animal. It follows indubitably that we must regard as the real tools of civilization all those instincts of reaction and resentment by the help of which the aristocratic races, together with their ideals, were finally degraded and overpowered, though that has not yet come to be synonymous with saying that the bearers of those tools also represented the civilization. It is rather the contrary that is not only probable, nay it is palpable today, these bearers of vindictive instincts that have to be bottled up, these descendants of all European and non-European slavery, especially of the pre-Aryan population. These people, I say, represent the decline of humanity. These tools of civilization are a disgrace to humanity and constitute in reality more of an argument against civilization, more of a reason why civilization should be suspected. One may be perfectly justified in being always afraid of the blonde beast that lies at the core of all aristocratic races, and in being on one's guard. But who could not a hundred times prefer to be afraid when one at the same time admires than to be immune from fear at the cost of being perpetually obsessed with the loathsome spectacle of the distorted, the dwarfed, the stunted, the envenomed. And is that not our fate? What produces today our repulsion towards man? For we suffer from man. There is no doubt about it. It is not fear. It is rather that we have nothing more to fear from men. It is that the worm, man, is in the foreground and pullulates. It is that the tame man, the wretched, mediocre and unedifying creature, has learned to consider himself a goal and a pinnacle, an inner meaning, an historic example, a higher man. Yes, it is that he has a certain right so to consider himself in so far as he feels that in contrast to that excess of deformity, disease, exhaustion and effeteness whose order is beginning to pollute present-day Europe. He at any rate has achieved a relative success. He at any rate still says yes to life. I cannot refrain at this juncture from uttering a sigh and one last hope. What is it precisely which I find intolerable? That which I alone cannot get rid of, which makes me choke and faint. Bad air. Bad air. That something misbegotten comes near me. That I must inhale the odour of the entrails of a misbegotten soul that accepted what can one not endure in the way of need, privation, bad weather, sickness, toil, solitude. In point of fact, one manages to get over everything, born as one is to a burrowing and battling existence. One always returns once again to the light. One always lives again one's golden hour of victory. 
and then one stands as one who was born unbreakable tense ready for something more, more difficult for something more distant like a bow stretched but the torture by every strain but from time to time do you grant me assuming that beyond good and evil there are goddesses who can grant one glimpse grant me but one glimpse only of something perfect fully realized happy mighty triumphant of something that still gives cause for fear a glimpse of a man that justifies the existence of man a glimpse of an incarnate human happiness that realizes and redeems for the sake of which one may hold fast to the belief in man for the position is this in the dwarfing and leveling of the european man lurks our greatest peril for it is this outlook which fatigues we see today nothing which wishes to be greater we surmise that the process is always still backwards still backwards towards something more attenuated more inoffensive more cunning more comfortable more mediocre more indifferent more chinese more christian man there is no doubt about it grows always better the destiny of europe lies even in this that in losing the fear of man we have also lost the hope in man yea the will to be a man the sight of man now fatigues what is present day nihilism if not that we are tired of man but let us come back to it the problem of another origin of the good of the good as the resentful man has thought it out demands its solution it is not surprising that the lambs should bear a grudge against the great birds of prey but that is no reason for blaming the great birds of prey for taking those little lambs and when the lambs say among themselves those birds of prey are evil and he who is as far removed from being a bird of prey who is rather its opposite a lamb is he not good well then there is nothing to cavil at in the setting up of this ideal though it may be that the birds of prey will regard it a little sneeringly and perchance say to themselves well, we know bear, bear no grudge against them these good lambs we even like them nothing is tastier than a tender lamb to require of strength that it should not express itself as strength that it should not be a wish to overpower a wish to overthrow a wish to become master a thirst for enemies and antagonisms and triumphs it is just as absurd to as to require of weakness that it should express itself as strength a quantum of forces just such a quantum of movement will action rather it is nothing else than just those very phenomena of moving willing acting and can only appear otherwise in the misleading errors of language and the fundamental fallacies of reason which have become petrified therein which understands and understands wrongly 
all working as conditioned by a worker, by a subject. And just exactly as the people separate the lightning from its flash, the interpreter, the latter, as a thing done, as the working of a subject which is called lightning, so also does the popular morality separate strength from the expression of strength. As though behind the strong man there existed some indifferent neutral substratum which enjoyed a caprice and option as to whether or not it should express strength. But there is no substratum. There is no being behind doing, working, becoming. The doer is a mere appendage to the action. The action is everything. In point of fact, the people duplicate the doing when they make the lightning lighten. That is a doing doing. They make the same phenomenon first cause, and then secondly the effect of that cause. The scientists fail to improve matters when they say, force moves, force causes, and so on. Our whole science is still, in spite of all its coldness, of all of its freedom from passion, a dupe to the tricks of language, and has never succeeded in getting rid of that superstitious changeling, the subject. The atom, to give another instance, is just such a changeling, just as the Kantian thing in itself. What wonder if the suppressed and stealthily simmering passions of revenge and hatred exploit for their own advantage their belief, and indeed hold no belief with a more steadfast enthusiasm than this, that the strong has the option of being weak, and the bird of prey of being a lamb. Thereby do they win for themselves the rights of attributing to the birds of prey the responsibility for being birds of prey, when the oppressed downtrodden and overpowered say to themselves with the vindictive guile of weakness let us be otherwise than the evil namely good and good is everyone who does not oppress who hurts no one who does not attack who does not pay back who hands over revenge to god who holds himself as we do in hiding who goes out of the way of evil and demands in short little from life like ourselves, the patient, the meek, the just. Yet all this, in its cold and unprejudiced interpretation, means nothing more than once and for all the weak are weak, it is good to do nothing for which we are not strong enough. But this dismal state of affairs, this prudence of the lowest order, which even insects possess, which in a great danger are fain to sham death so as to avoid doing too much, has, thanks to the counterfeiting and self-deception of weakness, come to masquerade in the pomp of an ascetic, mute and expectant virtue, just as though the very weakness of the weak, that is forsooth its being, its working, its whole unique, inevitable, inseparable reality, were a voluntary result something wished, chosen, a deed, an act of merit. This kind of man finds the belief in a neutral, free-choosing subject necessary from an instinct of self-preservation or self-assertion in which every lie is fain to sanctify itself. The subject, or to use proper language, the soul, 
has perhaps proved itself the best dogma in the world simply because it rendered possible to the horde of mortal, weak and oppressed individuals of every kind that most sublime specimen of self-deception. The interpretation of weakness as freedom, of being this or being that, as merit. Will anyone look a little into, write into, the mystery of how ideals are manufactured in this world? Who has the courage to do it? Come. Here we have a vista opened into these grimy workshops. Wait just a moment, dear Mr. Inquisitive and Mr. Foolhardy. Your eye must first grow accustomed to this false changing light. Yes, enough, now speak. What is happening below, down yonder? Speak out. Tell us what you see, man of the most dangerous curiosity, for now I am the listener. Oh, I see nothing. I hear the more. It is a cautious, spiteful, gentle whispering and muttering together in all the corners and crannies. It seems to me that they are lying. A sugary softness adheres to every sound. Weakness is turned to merit, there is no doubt about it. It is just as you say. Further... And the impotent requites not. It is turned to goodness, craven baseness to meekness, submission to those whom one hates, to obedience, namely obedience to one of whom they say that he ordered this submission. They call him God. The inoffensive character of the weak, the very cowardice in which he is rich, his standing at the door, his forced necessity of waiting, gain here fine names such as patience, which is also called virtue. Not being able to avenge oneself is called not wishing to avenge oneself. Perhaps even forgiveness, for they know not what they do. We alone know what they do. They also talk of the love of their enemies and sweat thereby. Further, they are miserable, there is no doubt about it. All these whisperers and counterfeiters in the corners, although they try to get warm by crouching close to each other, but they tell me that their misery is a favour and distinction given to them by God, just as one beats the dogs one likes best, that perhaps this misery is also a preparation, a probation, a training, that perhaps earth is still more something which will one day be compensated and paid back with a tremendous interest in gold, nay, in happiness, and this is what they call blessedness. Further, they are now giving me to understand that not only are they better men than the mighty, the lords of the earth, whose spittle they have got to lick, not out of fear, not at all out of fear, but because God ordains that one should honour all authority. Not only are they better men, but they also have a better time. At any rate, will one day have a better time. But enough! Enough, I can endure it no longer. Bad air. Bad air. These workshops where ideals are manufactured, verily they reek with the crassest lies. Nay, just one minute. You are saying nothing about the masterpieces of these virtuosos of black magic who can produce whiteness, milk and innocence out of any black you like 
Have you not noticed what a pitch of refinement is attained by their chef d'oeuvre? Their most audacious, subtle, ingenious and lying artist trick? Take care. These sallow beasts, full of revenge and hate, what do they make forsooth out of their revenge and hate? Do you hear these words? Would you suspect, if you trusted only their words, that you are among men of resentment and nothing else? I understand. I prick up my ears, <laughs> and I hold my nose. Now do I hear for the first time that which they have said so often. We good, we are the righteous. What they demand they call not revenge, but the triumph of righteousness. What they hate is not their enemy. No, no, no. They hate unrighteousness, godlessness. What they believe in and hope is not the hope of revenge, the intoxication of sweet revenge. Sweeter than honey, did Homer call it? But the victory of God, of the righteous God over the godless, what is left for them to love in this world is not their brothers in hate, but their brothers in love, as they say, all the good and righteous on the earth. And how do they name that which serves them as a solace against all the troubles of life, their phantasmagoria of their anticipated future blessedness? How do I hear aright? They call it the last judgment, the advent of their kingdom, the kingdom of God. But in the way, meanwhile, they live in faith, in love, in hope. Enough. Enough. In the faith in what? In the love for what? In the hope of what? These weaklings. They also, forsooth, wish to be strong sometime. There is no doubt about it. Sometime their kingdom also must come. The kingdom of God is their name for it, as has been mentioned. They are so meek in everything. Yet in order to experience that kingdom, it is necessary to live long, to live beyond death. Yes, eternal life is necessary, so that one can make up forever for that earthly life in faith, in love, in hope. Make up for what? Make up by what? Dante, as it seems to me, made a crass mistake when the awe-inspiring ingenuity he placed that inscription over the gate of hell. Me, too, made eternal love. Or, eternal love also created me. At any rate, the following inscription would have a much better right to stand over the gate of the Christian paradise and its eternal blessedness. Eternal love, uh, me too, made eternal hate. Granted, of course, that a truth may rightly stand over the gate to a lie. For what is the blessedness of that paradise? Possibly we should quickly surmise it, but it is better that it should not be explicit. <clears throat> but it is better that it should be explicitly attested by an authority who in such matters is not to be disparaged. Thomas of Aquinas, the great teacher and saint. Beati in regno celesti, he said, as gently as a lamb, vedabunt poenas damnatorum ut beatitudo illus magus compliciat. The blessed in the kingdom of heaven will behold the punishment of the damned 
so that their blessedness will please them all the more. Or, if we wish to hear a stronger tone, a word from the mouth of a triumphant father of the church who warned his disciples against the cruel ecstasies of the public spectacles. But why? Faith offers us so much more, says he. Something much stronger, thanks to the redemption. Joys of quite another kind stand at our disposal. Instead of athletes, we have our martyrs. We wish for blood. Well, we have the blood of Christ. But what then awaits us on the day of his return to his triumph? And then, does he proceed? Does this enraptured visionary, Tertullian, write, Yes, and there are other sights, that day of judgment with its everlasting issues, that day unlooked for by the nations, the theme of their derision, when the world, hoary with age, and all its many products shall be consumed in one great flame. How vast a spectacle then bursts upon the eye, what there excites my admiration? What my derision? Which sight gives me joy? Which rouses me to exaltation? As I see so many illustrious monarchs whose reception into the heavens was publicly announced, groaning now in their lowest darkness with great Jove himself, and those too who bore witness of their exaltation, governors of provinces too who persecuted the Christian, and fires more fierce than those with which in the days of their pride they raged against the followers of Christ. What world's wise men besides, the very philosophers in fact, who taught their followers that God had no concern in ought to be sublunary, and their want to assure them that either they had no souls or that they would never return to their bodies which at death they had left now covered with shame before the poor deluded ones, as one fire consumes them, and poets also trembling not before the judgment seat of Radamanthus or Minos, but of the unexpected Christ. I shall have a better opportunity then of hearing the tragedians louder voiced in their own calamity, of viewing the play-actors much more dissolute in the dissolving of the wrestlers, not in their gymnasia, but tossing in fiery billows, unless even then I shall not care to attend to such ministers of sin, in my eager wish rather to fix a gaze insatiable on those whose fury vented itself against the Lord. This, I shall say, this is that carpenter's or hireling's son, that Sabbath-breaker, that Samaritan and devil-possessed, this is he whom you fur. This is he whom you purchased from Judas. This is he whom you struck with reed and fist, whom you contemptuously spat upon, to whom you gave gall and vinegar to drink. This is he whom the disciples secretly stole away, that it might be said he had risen again, or the gardener abstracted, that his lettuces might come to no harm from the crowd of visitants. What quaestor or priest in his mummified munificence will bestow on you the favour of seeing and exulting in such things as these. And yet even now we, in a measure, have seen them by faith in the picturings of imagination. But what are the things which eye has not yet seen, ear has not yet heard, and which have not so much as dimly dawned upon the human heart? Whatever they are, they are noble, 
I believe, than circus in both theatres and every race course. <clears throat> End quote. Let us come to a conclusion. The two opposing values, good and bad, good and evil, have fought a dreadful thousand-year fight in the world, and though indubitably the second place has been for a long time in the preponderance, there are not wanting places where the fortune of the fight is still undecisive. It can almost be said that in the meanwhile the fight reaches a higher and higher level, and that in the meanwhile it has become more and more intense, and always more and more psychological so that nowadays there is perhaps no more decisive mark of the higher nature, of the more psychological nature, than to be in that sense self-contradictory, and to be actually still a battleground for those two opposites. The symbol of this fight, written in a writing which has remained worthy of perusal throughout the course of history up to the present time, is called Rome against Judea, Judea against Rome, Hitherto there has been no greater event than that fight, the putting of that question, that deadly antagonism. Rome found in the Jew the incarnation of the unnatural, as though it were its diametrically opposed monstrosity. And in Rome the Jew was found to be convicted of hatred of the whole human race. And rightly so, in so far as it is right to link the well-being and the future of the human race to the unconditional mastery of the aristocratic values, of the Roman values. What, conversely, did the Jews feel against Rome? Well, one can surmise it from a thousand symptoms, but it is sufficient to carry one's mind back to the Johannian Apocalypse, that most obscene of all the written outbursts, which has revenge on its conscience. One should also appraise at its full value the profound logic of the Christian instinct, when, over the very book of hate, it wrote the name of the disciple of love, that self-same disciple to whom it attributed that impassioned and ecstatic gospel. Therein lurks a portion of truth, however much literary forging may have been necessary for this purpose. The Romans were the strong and aristocratic, a nation stronger and more aristocratic has never existed in the world, has never even been dreamed of. Every relic of them, every inscription and raptures, granted that one can, do, can divine what it is that writes the inscription. The Jews, conversely, were that priestly nation of resentment par excellence, possessed by a unique genius for popular morals. Just compare with the Jews the nations with analogous gifts, such as the Chinese or the Germans, so as to realise afterwards what is first-rate and what is fifth-rate. Which of them has been provisionally victorious, Rome or Judea? But there is not a shadow of doubt. Just consider to whom in Rome now it's, to whom in Rome itself nowadays you bow down, as though before the quintessence of all the highest values. And not only in Rome, but almost over half the world, everywhere where man has been tamed, or is about to be tamed, to three Jews as we know, the one Jewess, to Jesus of Nazareth, to Peter the fisher, 
to Paul the tent maker and to the mother of the aforesaid Jesus named Mary. This is very remarkable. Rome is undoubtedly defeated. At any rate, there took place in the Renaissance a brilliantly sinister revival of the classical ideal, of the aristocratic valuation of all things. Rome herself, like a man waking up from a trance, stirred beneath the burden of the new Judaized Rome that had been built over her, which presented the appearance of an ecumenical synagogue and was called the church. But immediately Judea triumphed again, thanks to that fundamentally popular German and English movement of revenge, which is called the Reformation, and taking also into account its inevitable corollary, the restoration of the church, the restoration also of the ancient graveyard peace of classical Rome, Judea proved yet once more victorious over the classical ideal in the French Revolution, and in a sense which was even more crucial and even more profound. The last political aristocracy that existed in Europe, that of the French 17th and 18th centuries, broke into pieces beneath the instincts of a resentful populace. Never had the world heard a greater jubilation, a more uproarious enthusiasm. Indeed, there took place in the midst of the most monstrous and unexpected phenomenon, the ancient ideal itself, swept before the eyes and conscience of humanity with all its life and with unheard of splendour, and in opposition to resentment's lying war cry of the prerogative of the most. In opposition to the will of lowliness, abasement and equalisation. The will to a retrogression and twilight of humanity. There rang out once again stronger, simpler, more penetrating than ever, the terrible and enchanting counter-war cry of the prerogative of the few. Like a final signpost to other ways there appeared Napoleon, the most unique and violent anachronism that ever existed, and in him the incarnate problem of the aristocratic ideal in itself. Consider well what a problem it is. Napoleon, the synthesis of monster and superman. Was it therewith over? Was that greatest of all antitheses of ideals thereby relegated to the historical record for all time? Or only postponed? Postponed for a long time? May there not take place at some time or other a much more awful, much more carefully prepared flaring up of the old conflagration? Further, should not one wish that consummation with all one's strength, will it oneself, Demand it oneself, he who at this juncture begins, like my readers, to reflect, to think further, will have difficulty in coming quickly to a conclusion. Ground enough for me to come myself to a conclusion, taking it for granted that for some time past what I mean has been sufficiently clear. What I exactly mean by that dangerous motto which is inscribed on the body of my last book beyond good and evil. At any rate, that is not the same as beyond good and bad.